and we are recording in progress with Mr. Jared Knott on Saturday, March 25th. 2023 at 4.05 p.m. Eastern time. Guys, if you want to support the show, click on the little red button for locals. You can go give me a couple bucks a month, get exclusive content, help keep the podcast independent, all that good stuff. But uh, today we're going to discuss your book, Tiny Blunders, Big Disasters. And um, uh, the link is in the description. And uh, dude, that's a genuinely good book. I, I, I actually, I seriously mean that. That is a genuinely good book about... It actually, in a weird way, was it was kind of optimistic and that when it feels like the world can be going in like such a dark direction at times, that book really laid out that any one little factor could change and like the entire timeline can change. So, and you can't control every factor. It really is the butterfly effect. And so it's like almost chaos, like chaos theory, like one little thing can change and we don't have to go to world war three. We don't have to do this. Now, one thing can change and it can turn into the apocalypse. That's the flip right. side of the coin. But um, yeah, man, real quick, could you introduce yourself to the uh, to the new listeners? Yes, yes, I'm Jared Knox, okay, and I uh, have a best. I'm happy to say a best-selling book. It's been blessed. It's uh, been on the bestseller list now for over uh, 27 months, won six awards, uh, and it's uh, sold well over 20,000 copies. The audiobook is also uh, doing very well. We've had a tremendous response. I. Uh, I got a, a, one of my favorite reviews on the book came uh, recently from this lady. She said she had a friend who was being incarcerated or was incarcerated. And so she wanted to have something to read. So she sent him a copy of the book <laughs> and he enjoyed it very, very much. And he passed it around to all the fellow inmates. They really liked it. They thought it was a very interesting book, which is nice to know. We got a, we got a special audience and kind of a special circumstance. They're guests of the state. And they may have a special interest in a book talking about tiny blunders leading to big disasters. That's <laughs> they may be looking at the experience. So anyway, but I, I get a lot of feedback. We have like uh, almost not quite 2,500 reviews, the vast majority of which I'm happy to say have been very, very positive. And I feel a kind of a connection with my readers. It's a fun book to read and an interesting book to read. I find writing about it, I find talking about it. I feel I, I basically feel warm in my heart when I hear good feedback from the, from the listeners, which I'm happy to say it's to come in large abundance. So I feel very, very blessed. That's awesome. Yeah. And it's, it just makes me think about like current events, like mm-hmm. any one little thing, the Chinese spy balloon, Nord Stream, well, that's not really tiny, but any one thing, it's, I guess what makes me a little wary about like, you know, the war, us backing Ukraine and China now backing Russia. It's like, this is this might be something that we look at in 50 years and go, yeah, it started so small and then took over everything. Yes, I had an article, uh, I have to say, just published in American Greatness uh, magazine. And in that uh, article, I talk about how uh, uh, war, uh, the war with China has already begun. OK, and we're losing that war. Of course, we think of wars as being amphibious landings and uh, bombing runs and the evening news showing casualties. Uh, the battlefield, uh, but this war, the casualties are coming primarily from fentanyl being manufactured in China, precursors sent to the drug cartels. Now, some of it comes directly from China to the United States, but a large amount of it going into the uh, drug cartels in Mexico that make it into pills, come across our open border and killing 72,000 of our young people every year from drug overdoses. Uh, that's just the fentanyl. It's also uh, imports of 
coming in of methamphetamine and also um, heroin and other drugs, uh, cocaine. Uh, and it's also causing even more casualties because the total uh, casualties of those people killed is like 110,000 a year, 72,000, which is uh, fentanyl. Anyway, that is, uh, if you look at the last three years, we don't know the exact number, but easily 180, 190, maybe 200,000 people killed from drug overdoses in the last three years in the United States. The casualties of our wars from the Korean War to the present, including Vietnam, including uh, the uh, war on global war on terrorism, all that together, maybe 85,000 have been killed. So something like double the number of people killed in our shooting wars have been killed from the, uh, the drug crisis, uh, greatly encouraged and greatly uh, accelerated by the uh, Chinese Communist Party. Why are they doing it? Not to make money. They're selling the drugs and the precursors at a very, very cheap price. to get as many people as possible addicted to using those drugs to tear at the fabric of our society uh, and uh, to weaken the country. They don't allow anything like that to take place in their own country, but they're greatly uh, encouraging uh, to take place uh, in the United States or adding as much fuel to the fire as they possibly can. That's just one of many ways in which they're trying to attack the United States. Of course, the TikTok situation is another. They're trying to degrade and to damage our young people in particular and to make America weaker. And they're trying to be the dominant power in the world at the expense of freedom and elections and democracy and at the expense primarily of the United States. That's the situation we face. Yeah. Do you think the U.S. is going to effectively fight back against this new form of warfare that's not, you know, tanks and fighter jets, but rather economic, like you just said, drug-based or, you know, culturally-based? Yeah. We're trying to be uh, optimistic, and sometimes it's difficult to be optimistic with all the bad news with uh, heap on us here. But I uh, will say, whenever the American people and the United States government finally gets focused and finally starts making a major effort, whenever that's happened, they've been able to accomplish great things. Uh, World War II being one of the top examples, we were way behind uh, in 1939 in terms of our armament, planes, tanks, etc., and Navy. And of course, after December the 7th, we were way, way, way behind in things like a very bad, of course. But uh, there was a huge response uh, in the United States uh, its people and the uh, war production just exploded with a great fury. We were able to produce a mountain of tanks, uh, uh, well-designed planes, tanks, another story, but uh, weapons and so on like that. And we're able to, and some people say, we just overwhelmed the enemy uh, by our, our, our kind of a rich man's solution, overwhelmed them. But okay, we'll take it and won in that way. So it, uh, they would never have guessed to such a huge increase in production of America would could happen in such a short period of time, but it did. So whenever We've faced uh, a great challenge and we recognize the challenge and the public becomes aware of the challenge. We can uh, do almost anything. Now, uh, of course, that's a nice little speech, excuse me, but hope, hope to gosh, we can gear up again and handle this challenge. I'm somewhat optimistic because we've done it uh, so often in the past. Yeah. Do you think, do you think we are stumbling into World War III? Uh, I want to say Surely not, but at the same time, we have a very dangerous enemy uh, that has a better, a larger navy than we have. Uh, they, uh, a whole list of things they're doing to attack the United States, to threaten the 
uh, Panama uh, Canal to build up their relations with uh, Argentina and other nations, of course, and Frank also with Russia. And I want to say, surely we can somehow avoid this, but it, uh, there's a serious chance we'd get into a war over uh, Taiwan. Uh, it could get uh, real ugly, it could escalate, but I want to say World War III, surely not, although we are, we are living in dangerous times. When do you think China's going to move on Taiwan? Um, my premise is uh, that if we build up our Navy, and build up our uh, resources and with the support of uh, New Zealand and uh, Australia, Japan, South Korea, uh, indirectly uh, NATO, if we build up our forces with a strong enough and uh, the people of Taiwan I might mention, especially if we win in Ukraine and defeat the Russian army soundly, that's going to be an encouragement to the people of Taiwan to do the same thing that the Ukrainians did. And if China sees this determined, well-supported, uh, well-weaponized uh, people in Taiwan willing to fight to the death, uh, literally to defend their nation, they may uh, look for peaceful alternatives rather than conquering uh, Taiwan. I, and I don't know how much they're going to gain from Taiwan. The conquering Taiwan is going to pay heavy price in terms of business and influence around the world. But I think I think if we stand up to them, we have a good chance of having a, a good outcome. It kind of feels like it kind of feels like China's just like watching us deplete our stockpiles in Ukraine mm-hmm. and just waiting to pounce. Yes, that's I'm sure the, the chess game and the analysis that they're making they're sitting there thinking along, exactly right along those very lines, and all the tanks and all the planes and all the support uh, being sent to the Ukrainians depletes what we have available for uh, other uh, other defenses and other pursuits. Uh, it's going to be primarily built built for Navy uh, in the Pacific. And it does seem like that the United States is the one that's shouldered with the biggest burden. Uh, France, Germany, Australia, they pay, they do a little bit uh, to do it. To some extent, but the burden falls on the United States over and over again. We could sure use as much help as possible from our allies. Hmm. Alternatively, could it be that China's watching the the fight in Ukraine and seeing how many nations are, you know, regardless of what people think, if we should or shouldn't, just objectively, how many nations have come to the aid of Ukraine? Are they maybe looking at that and going, oh? It's not all talk. Like they will actually come defend, and thus, are they going to also do that in Taiwan? Yes. Now, the uh, I guess uh, Ron DeSantis has kind of come out and implied that uh, there's a limit to what we can do in Ukraine. That's primarily a regional conflict. Is what his position was. Well, I respectfully disagree. Uh, Mark Levine and General uh, Jack Keane and uh, Nikki Haley, among others, uh, think that we it's very important that we win in the Ukraine, because uh, a win there is going to be a win for uh, the Taiwan as well. If we, if we uh, through determination and technology and more advanced weaponry, if we're able to defeat the Russians, and by the way, on that subject, those people understand one thing, Mr. Putin understands one thing, and that's power, yeah. uh, strength. If he's beaten solidly, that's the only thing that's going to work there. If we try to get him to sign Peace agreement, truce of some kind. Of course, they notorious for violating almost every truce, every agreement they ever made. Uh, he, it means nothing to them. He's, of course, a mass murderer uh, who uh, lies as, as, uh, as often as he uh, takes a brick of water. 
Uh, so the only thing that's going to work there, I think, is a solid defeat of the Russians, which is going to help us tremendously in the Taiwan. And we're going to have to find the resources, uh, to invest the resources to uh, maintain a strong Navy uh, and a strong presence uh, in the Pacific. What's going to work here with China is, is if they see uh, a not, a, not an easier way to victory, they see a strong, determined uh, opponent, that's uh, our best chance for a peaceful resolution in the Pacific. Do you think it's possible to win in Ukraine? Uh, it kind of seems like yes. a meat grinder. Well, it's a meat grinder. The, now, the Russian army has performed very poorly. It's just surprised everybody how poor their performance is. They do have those hypersonic missiles. They do have a good tank, but the logistics have been horrible, and also the training of the troops has been horrible, and their, and their willingness to fight uh, has been, it's been very weak. They've just been done very, very poorly. There's really going to be a uh, offensive in April, they, uh, they think, on the part of the Ukrainians. If it is successful, uh, we, we can win uh, in uh, Ukraine. We think we can. Uh, that's going to be that's going to be our, our, our best foundation to stand on to try to solve the situation in, uh, uh, in Taiwan. But if China starts supplying Russia, and then the United States and NATO are supplying Ukraine, I mean, who's going to blink first? This this is looking like it could just grind on for the foreseeable future. It may have to be decided on the battlefield. Now, we, of course, we need to be doing, you know, there are people who have training time more about it than I do, but uh, every pressure should be applied to China that they not supply the Russians with arms. So far, there's not been any evidence of any substantial direct aid uh, but the Russians are running out of uh, supplies and equipment and weaponry themselves. And so you know, they'd be, they'd be hard pressed to continue to work successfully unless they get a lot of weapons uh, from China. Uh, and again, we should, of course, I'm sure we are doing everything we can to discourage that from happening. And I think, I think though, the Ukrainians are very determined to win, uh, very motivated. Uh, and by the way, they say learning how to operate the new weapon systems very, uh, very successful. And it's uh, accelerated the timetable because they have been doing so well learning how to operate the tanks and the artillery and as well as the, uh, the jets, the warplanes. War so that's an encouraging sign. They are determined to win if we give them the proper support. I think they can beat the Russians who, the Russian troops are on the ground, but they want to be there, don't even know why they're there. Yeah. I think I think China's already started though. I, I want to say I saw last night that they've started supplying Russia with drones. So I don't think it's even hypothetical anymore. Mm-hmm. I know they're getting a lot of drones, of course, from Iran. I don't I not heard that about the Chinese, but that could very well be that. Uh, you know, how far they're willing to go? They're willing to send tanks. They're willing to send warplanes. Are they willing to send advisors? I don't know, but that's a very serious. That's kind of their Russia's one chance possibly trying to dig their way out of this hole is support from the Chinese. So hopefully that'll happen, but I, I don't know what's exactly what's going to happen. To go back to, I guess, the theme of your book, and it's a bit pessimistic, but what ways could this just accidentally escalate? Well, there's interesting. There's a, a book, a very well-written book uh, called this close and it was about how we nearly got into a uh, nuclear war in the early 1960s uh, 
it was, of course, the confrontation over the uh, build up of missiles in Cuba by the Russians, okay, which would be the United States. Um, they uh, had interranged ballistic missiles that were being put into Cuba, uh, a big uh, confrontation with uh, President Kennedy against Khrushchev. Uh, they must be withdrawn. They cannot be allowed to stay there. Well, there was a Russian submarines that had come down into the waters that are close to Cuba. And uh, it was, uh, the waters were very warm there and the uh, sailors on down the submarines were in uh, 120 degree temperatures, okay? And those American ships above the submarines uh, harassing them, dropping hand grenades into the water. Well, the hand grenades didn't do any direct damage, but it was like taking a great big sledgehammer and hitting against the side of the submarine. Boom, yeah. boom, here we are, 120 degrees. Here we got these big explosions just rocking their submarine and the submarine captain, uh, Russian captain, was very close to firing a missile uh, to blow up the ship above it. Okay, and, that, and it's just thinking, they're 120 degrees here, he's been irritated here, they're provoking him, and he was about to push the button. Fortunately, I discovered in the book, there was another uh, Soviet captain uh, on board who had gone through a, a nuclear accident that the Russians had just experienced, and he talked the captain out of doing that. Well, oh my gosh, if he had to fire a, a missile that would destroy the American ship above it that was harassing him, oh my gosh, well, I don't know uh, what would have happened. That would, would that have triggered a, a chain reaction and uh, not just one ship lost, but a, a major incident would have triggered a, a, a nuclear war. Uh, and also, paralleling that, um, John Kennedy, by the way, comes out looking very good in that, in that particular book. He's, John Kennedy was talking about he's getting a lot of crap advice from the group of wise old men he assembled and the other military leaders. They were, and the vast majority of them were supporting uh, military action with Cuba. And uh, he said, John Kennedy did not like Adlai Stevenson. I don't know why he didn't, but it said in the book he didn't. And uh, who was our ambassador to the United Nations at the time. But he did ask his opinion, his input. And he was just about the only advisor who said, let's find a peaceful solution. Let's see if we can't find a peaceful solution. He followed his advice and uh, negotiating back and forth, communicating back and forth. They were able to hit a, reach a kind of a compromise. The military action was avoided. By the way, Curtis LeMay, the charge of the Air Force there, was very much in favor of going in and bombing Cuba. Uh, it would have been, who knows what would happen, but it was a, a tough, a tough, it's the most, probably the most dangerous time in terms of nuclear war in the history of the country. Uh, well, hopefully we don't get to that situation where just one captain pushing one button can start a war that could uh, multiply into a nuclear war. It was a close, that was a close call. And again, the name of the book is uh, This Close, and I forget the exact name of the author, but it's an excellent, an excellent book there. Uh, John Kennedy deserves very high marks uh, for how he handled that situation. Did not deserve high marks for the Bay of Pigs uh, fiasco, but deserves uh, great appreciation for the way he handled that particular crisis. So bringing that forward, pretty gosh, we never get ourselves in that uh, kind of situation. Hopefully there are rational minds, however evil they might be, hopefully we have rational minds on the other side who want to uh, avoid that kind of tinderbox uh, situation which could lead to a uh, you know, big predicament. Uh, yeah, my fear is that this just turns into a war of attrition and Putin finally just launches like a tactical nuke. 
that's like my fear is he just we're, he's back up against the wall and then he's like what do I care mm-hmm. well he uh, is a rumored to have uh, cancer maybe dying of cancer maybe <coughs> it's not true maybe he doesn't have cancer at all maybe it's a mission or whatever I don't know uh, but the big weakness to the Soviet system and even to the Chinese system is that so much power, almost all power, is invested in just one personality. Okay, uh, there was a talk that maybe uh, Mr. Putin had mismanaged the war so badly uh, that Syria, the oligarchs and the military leaders would get together and he would be ousted the way Khrushchev was ousted uh, back in the early uh, 60s. I just got relegated off to almost like a house arrest kind of situation. Well, Mr. Putin, uh, of course, uh, paranoid and um, manipulative, has solved that problem with his death squads. He's gone around and had uh, a large number of of the uh, oligarchs murdered. And there's a word, kind of a a comical, dark comedy kind of word called defenestration. And what is that? That means throwing somebody out of a window. Yeah. Well, they've had three cases of, of somebody in the hospital being jumping, committing suicide by jumping out of a window from six-story height. Well, yeah. And also people who supposedly committed suicide and also people who were shot by unknown assailants, about eight, 10, 12 of them. It just, uh, so and there was one oligarch who was uh, had moved to an expensive apartment building in Washington, D.C., and you'd want to say, well, gee, the White House is just down the road. The FBI is just, well, a few blocks away. Surely they would not murder him right there. So right in Washington, D.C., I guess they did. He was, uh, now, if we met that, whether it was defenestration or uh, fake suicide or whatever, right there, our nation's capital. Uh, and uh, uh, It's 10, 12 of them, just one after the other. What do you think? Mr. Four days later, he was murdered also. So uh, he's uh, covered himself in terms of any kind of palace coup by murdering all the people. Part of the palace coup, which, by the way, is is very dirty. So the uh, digress a second. Uh, the uh, person in history who's responsible for the most, most number of deaths. Uh, uh, the highest body count is Mao Zedong, okay, and the second uh, is uh, Stalin. Both of those people murdered off the large numbers of their own people, and then Hitler only comes in third. <laughs> but uh, uh, getting back to the war in Ukraine, I, the only way I think it's going to successfully end is if the Russian army is just solidly beat. Okay, just, just totally defeated on the battlefield. We need to give them, in my humble opinion, everything that we can in terms of warplanes, tanks, in terms of uh, I'm always going in a direction that's more than a phone, telephone. It's not wrong. The White House has not called to ask my advice, but there it is, free of charge. <laughs> they haven't called yet. Um, no. Yeah, I think... I think that was the second best hope was that there would be some sort of palace coup, as you said, but it seems like he's kind of crossing all those, knocking those threats out. Yeah, I don't, I think that, I mean, do you think we're going to see NATO troops there? Do you think we're going to see U.S. troops? Do you think it's going to escalate? I don't 
think so. Uh, one of the biggest things on the positive side is that the Ukrainians are fighting so well, learning the new system so rapidly and so well, and they are the ones winning the war with our help. Uh, and it's an expensive process, all those tanks, all those planes, all those uh, anti-missile systems, et cetera, like that. But uh, that is our biggest, biggest thing in our favor. We have a very successful, determined uh, fighting force with the Ukrainians. God bless them for that. And it's not going to be necessary that NATO troops or American troops go in there except as advisors uh, back behind the lines. So I don't see American troops go in there. I don't think it's going to be, hopefully not going to be necessary. Of course, you can turn the other way. Chinese weapons uh, come in, it bolsters the, uh, the rush. The Chinese troops go in there and maybe they can uh, map a horrible grind. And of course, Mr. Putin didn't care how many troops are lost or how many uh, weapons are destroyed. He just, he just keeps on pouring them into the meat. no bueno that's not good i mean yeah i don't know unless unless something absurd happens like didn't we just like drone something in iran or syria like two days ago uh yes that's it's just what i've seen on the news is that yes the uh uh it's, it's isis or certain terrorist fighters uh from Iran have been attacking uh, the United States and they were asking why our anti-missile, anti-drone system was not effective and may have been that it was just had back up to protect our contractors and our people in Syria, protect them from drone attacks and as well as counter-attacking uh, the attacks that take place now. It's much better if we can just neutralize the attack with, uh, as opposed to getting hit and losing people and then having to hit back and so on like that. But that's, I'm just repeating what I've seen on the, on the news. You know, they say that the uh, uh, Iranians and the Syrians are not allies, but they're united whenever it's anti-American. So uh, they see a chance to attack the United States, the, uh, the Iranians who uh, participated in that attack. Yeah, I just, I don't know why, I just have like a creeping feeling that something's going to accidentally happen. Like someone's going to fire something into some, you know, it's going to suck in like a second country or a third country. And it's just going to spiral very, very quickly. And we got through the Cold War, but I mean, all the nukes are still there. Like all the threats are still there. It, you know, it it, it ended, but nothing actually went away. Like, that's something that I think a lot of us forget is, like, all the missile silos are still there. All the warheads are still primed. Like, they're all, the nuclear subs are still on patrol. None of it went away. Like, yeah, we got through it, but it's it's ongoing. And at any moment, this could, I mean, with banks collapsing, it's, at any moment, it's just, like, there's so much, there's so much just, like, dry wood like one spark could just burn this thing. Like, 
I mean, like, reveal Princip, if it wasn't him, I think it would have been anybody. I think that that whole area, or at least from what, what I remember from history, is, like, that was the powder keg, right? So if it wasn't Princip, it would have been someone doing something. Well, yeah, there's a great quote attributed to uh, von Bismarck. Of course, sometimes these people get creative and they make up quotes that were never stated. But he was uh, supposedly said, uh, I can uh, I can tell you about the war starting, and I can't tell you when, but I can tell you where some fool thing in the Balkans will be what starts it. Uh, the uh, leaders of uh, Europe are like men uh, smoking a cigar in an armory. Uh, once a spark will set it all off, world's worth to that effect. And that was the, ended up being the case. They had the uh, alliances and uh, kind of balanced out against each other. Uh, England on one side, uh, and France on one side, they had uh, the Austrians and the Russians on the other side. Uh, the uh, Russians, or the Germans, I would say, of course, the Russians are also on the Allied side. But the uh, Russians, uh, the uh, Germans were looking to start the war. There was a thing, but um, oh, an accident, and set it all off. Well, yes and no, uh, that uh, the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand, which was in the book, like, is an mm-hmm. accident. The chauffeur takes yeah. a long turn, and then coming out of uh, Schiller's delicatessen, now the story was that he stepped out with his uh, lunch in his hand to yeah. eat some kind of meat pastry. I think that turns out not to be true, but he he, he steps out and here, Fuller right in front of him, is the Archduke Ferdinand and his, his, his princess, his wife, and uh, and then and there's a precept with his pistol, and he pulls out and bam, bam, bam. And he said he shot the wife. He said he was aiming for this general on the other side of the running board, and he missed him and hits the wife. Okay. Anyway, of course, then that one dollar after another after another, the Germans kind of looking for an excuse to start the war anyway, and here we go. And uh, and it was that if it had not been for that single mistake. I guess the Germans were looking for an opportunity to start the war and officially started it. Uh, but they, uh, of course, you never know. Yeah. Um, Ferdinand himself was a moderate voice. It's ironic that the Black Hand organization was targeting him because he was a more moderating voice. If, he, if uh, his father had retired or died and he had taken over, uh, that he would have been pulling in the direction of peace and avoiding a war. And it's possible that war, World War I might have been avoided uh, altogether. Uh, but of course, you just don't know. But again, the, the Germans uh, were, were spoiling for a fight. And so you can't say that the war would not have taken place without that mistake. But it's possible uh, that it uh, would not have taken place. And then two, if they waited another year or two when they were more prepared, Maybe they would have won it when it finally did start. So uh, it's uh, when it was uh, great unknowns. It was it was triggered by a tiny mistake, as I talked about in the, in the book. But uh, would it have come anyway? Uh, would they have won if they, if they waited a year or two? Of course, no one knows the answer to those questions. Yeah, I think uh, uh, Dan Carlin said in his his I think it's a six part series on World War One blue part blueprints for Armageddon, like four hours each. It's like a, it's a set of podcasts, but it's better than like any audiobook I've ever listened to, and it's mm-hmm. it's just his take on World War One, and uh, I think he describes it as like there are all these interlocking mechanisms and alliances and kind of NATO esque. If they attack on one, is an attack on all, and it was 
like World War One just he was like it started as just this like Rube Goldberg machine. Like everything was just no one wanted to like default on their alliance. So just you have to go here and we're gonna go there. So we're gonna start putting trains of soldiers here. And it was just the thing just started and it was like the only way out of this is through it. Well, yeah, I know. Now there was a, a movie, a television television movie about the Cuban Missile Crisis. And uh, Jack Devane, who's now been selling gold, of course, with uh, Rosalind Capital for a number of years now, he played John Kennedy. And in the, the transcript there in the movie, he says that uh, he read the book, The Guns of August. Yeah. And, he, and that there was asked uh, such and such a general, how did the world how did it work? all begin? Oh, if only we knew. <laughs> if we only knew. Well, I read that book too. It's one of my favorite the books. Uh, and, uh, uh, I didn't see get that message in there at all. The message I got, and people have a tendency to blame the Allies as equally with the Germans and the Austrians. Well, that's not the message I got at all. Uh, the message that I got um, from the book of Guns of August very clearly was a German aggression. And they very much wanted to start a war. Now, the French, by the way, uh, they had the, the two lines facing each other. The war had not yet started. Uh, the French gave the order uh, for the military forces to pull back 10 miles from the line, 10 miles, and the local commanders were just furious. We're dug in, we're in strong protective positions, we're giving up strong defensive positions. They're ordered to pull back from the front lines by 10 miles. They pull all the way back 10 miles wide out so that there could not be a single incident that accidentally triggers the beginning of World War One. Well, okay, that's the French, French position. Uh, of course, they're lovers more than fighters. God bless them for that. But they were bending over backwards to avoid a conflict. Okay, and it's the Germans who uh, looking for a conflict, looking for an excuse to start the war. Well, of course, they didn't. Uh, and, and here it came, it comes the attack. There's a whole story about it there about how they, oh, it's, well, I, it, that's a whole other story. We'll go into it. But uh, they almost won. And there was a Harvard professor who wrote this uh, essay or report saying it would have been better if the Germans had have won World War One, what? What are we talking about? He said, well, then World War II would not have been necessary, and Holocaust would not have been necessary, and the world would have been better off just to let, get over with, let the Germans win, and go on from there. And of course, the Kaiser was not nearly, nearly as evil as Adolf Hitler. It was uh, the whole business about uh, tracking down the Jews and the gas houses and, and all terrible things would not have happened. Well, I don't know. It's kind of hard to say. I, I push you up. Uh, 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 I'll say on another subject, kind of an aside there, that the American troops uh, fought very well there. Uh, the um, that was, uh, and it could be that we had a lot of uh, boys uh, from the farm who did a lot of hunting and had a plenty of riflery. Of course, the most famous of whom was, of course, uh, Sergeant York. Okay, I almost want to say Gary Cooper, but it was uh, uh, Sergeant York, who was an incredible, incredible uh, marksman. And of course, was one of the biggest American heroes of all time. But he was, of course, leading example of the fine performance of the American soldiers. Now, here's something else too. Uh, the uh, some historians say that the in fact, von Bismarck at the end of World War One said that the war was won. The war was won by the American infantry in the Ardennes. Okay. Now, uh, of course, is the pleasure there. Is the old saying. Very true. Victory has a thousand fathers, and failure has an orphan. Well, 
okay, World War One's over, the Allies have won. Who gets the credit? Well, the British, well, we deserve a lot of credit. French, we deserve a lot of credit. The Russians uh, have some credit. And the United States, uh, which came to the war late, well, maybe not so much. But the uh, evidence would indicate, again, von Bismarck, uh, not von Bismarck, von Hindenburg, uh, the war was won by the American infantry and the Army, and uh, General Pershing uh, may have been a critical factor. He did an excellent general, he did an excellent job in organizing and focusing our, our forces and in training the American um, uh, infantry primarily at that point. One thing that they were doing is they would do a just-in-time kind of thing with the artillery. It'd be heavy artillery falling on the German lines, flying on the German lines. I'd stop for 15 minutes, start up again 13, 14, 15 minutes later. Oh, stop, start, stop, start, start. And then at this designated time at uh, 6.53 in the evening, American forces creeping up, creeping up, creeping up, okay, and at exactly 6.43, it stopped. There they are, jumping into the trenches, uh, getting a big jump on the, uh, on the Germans with the things like that that they uh, trained the American troops to do. And it was very, very effective. And, and in uh, uh, late October, November, the American offensive was uh, was extremely effective, and the German lines were collapsing. Uh, just as a month earlier, six weeks earlier, uh, Haig, General Haig, a British general, was not a very good general, I'll explain in a second, uh, was uh, calling for a, a truce, blocking for a, 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 an armistice that was not much more than just a neutral truce. He was kind of almost uh, caving in. But the, the great success of the American troops, to me for sounding chauvinistic, won the war fairly decisively. Okay, now, General Pershing was saying, we need to keep driving forward and defeat them and get an unconditional surrender. If we do not, they would just lick their wounds and come back at us again. And so, but he was then told to kind of, that's none of your business, you're running the military. This is a diplomatic decision from the president and from the diplomats, so stay out of it. And so he was kind of nipped and, and kind of backed away and it was the diplomats that, that came up with the truce, which was allowed the German army to march back into Germany uh, without undefeated, so to speak, uh, and just, just to stack arms. And it was a situation that Allied troops moved into Germany to take over the running of the government. Uh, in World War II, of course, we learned our lesson. Everyone unconditional surrender completely. We didn't want to leave any remnants of the German government in place. But uh, I'm getting kind of... Uh, no, keep going. going. No, it's great. No, it's great. Okay. Keep going. Here's here's a, here's uh and and the second my second book I'm working on the sequel to Tiny Blunders, Big Disasters, and in there there's going to be a teaser that uh, a correctly conjugated sentence determined uh, back in the 1890s determined who was going to be the winner of World War One. Huh? <laughs> what? Okay. Well, it's kind of interesting. I think it was in the state of Missouri, as I recall, but uh, young. John Pershing was applying for West Point. He had no way of affording an expensive education. He wasn't particularly interested in the military, but of course, a free education at West Point was a hugely valuable prize. So he was competing for it. He and another very bright young man tied, okay, in the examination, the written examination. So to break the tie, they gave them, I think, more than one question. One of the questions was, how do you correctly conjugate this particular sentence? Young John Jay got it right. The other gentleman missed it. Okay. So John Jay goes off to West Point, does very well at West Point, and becomes, beyond that, becomes an extremely outstanding officer, a very, very talented officer. He was actually promoted from captain 
all the way to general fairly early in his uh, career. He served in the Philippines, had very good relationships with the people in the Philippines. It's a long story. Anyway, uh, some historians believe that if it had not been for Pershing, I think Leonard Wood was kind of the second choice to be commanding of the expeditionary forces. If it had not been for Pershing, we might very well have lost World War I and history would have gone a completely different direction. Uh, and that's a delight to English teachers everywhere will be happy to hear that story. <laughs> Uh, because uh, knowing how to conjugate a sentence made all the difference. And maybe we might have lost World War I except for the, the one mistake or, or avoiding that one mistake. That's terrifying. That's absolutely terrifying. Yes. Yeah, World War, yeah. World War I is just... I don't know. You, like, you learn so much about World War II. I feel like World War One's glossed over. And the more you look into it, the more you realize just how insane that conflict was as well. Like, yeah, huge casualties, and of course it was uh, trench warfare. But uh, you have to give. Uh, Pershing was not perfect. Uh, Patton was uh, young. Patton was one of his aides, and he uh, as he got into World War II, he would go to visit his old boss, and he said it was kind of sad that Pershing had not kept up with modern warfare. Talking about air, uh, air support and the tank support, he was still kind of locked into World War One thinking regarding uh, the emphasis on the infantry. But nevertheless. He was extremely effective in getting the infantry in the Ardennes to uh, defeat the Germans. Again, the German lines were collapsing as a result of the American uh, offensive. Uh, you wouldn't ask the, the British or the French to <coughs> say that necessarily, but it was uh, it was actually true. By the way, uh, Haig was uh, told I, in the second book I talked about this. Uh, uh, Patton uh, was saying that uh, the Montgomery was the only good general that the British had. Uh, there were bad generals, and the government's more concerned about losing a battle than not winning one. Uh, but, uh, the, uh, Omar Bradley had a low opinion of the British uh, generals that he worked with there in North Africa and uh, Europe. Why is it that the, there's an old saying that the British army is composed of lions led by donkeys? And what do they mean by that? Troops, the troops in the field, the Tommies, as good as soldiers as are in the world, strong. Courage, uh, uh, very aggressive, very skilled, best in the world, equal to anybody's soldiers. Uh, but their military generals just horrible. Okay, and, a, and that's uh, true for a number of years, going back to uh, War of 1812. Horrible generalship there in, in New Orleans. At one point, the generals had their troops stop in formation within range of the American, if uh, the American snipers, they were just shooting them down right and left. There were other mistakes that were made, uh, other uh, mistakes that were made uh, throughout the war where Hague was considered a disaster uh, as, a, as a president. Uh, Ridgeway, one of our very good generals, was uh, just uh, still years later, uh, just uh, exercised over, over a horrible job he's doing and, and huge casualties that were taking place, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, why is it that the British generals were so poor? Well, the British system, to get a commission in the British military, you needed to be able to afford a lot of expensive uniforms, you need to explore, explore a lot of uh, expensive uh, uh, parties and entertainment and so on and so forth. You needed an, in, an independent income to be able to become a commissioned officer in the British military, uh, uh, for the most part, exceptions. In the United States, it's just the opposite. Poor boys, and by the way, Bradley was coming from almost impoverished circumstances, one of our best generals. Eisenhower, very humble circumstances, and Pershing. Uh, uh, his father was a shopkeeper and a farmer, but one of nine children. He could never afford to go to West Point or a, a fancy uh, uh, university. 
uh, and free education at one of the best universities in the world, okay, it was a big prize and it reached deep into society and got people, Eisenhower's and Pershing's and Bradley's uh, from all strata society to be part of the pool from which uh, leaders were chosen. A British system, I don't know, 60, 70% of the people, 70, whatever it was, or 80% is excluded. So they're drawing their officers from a very narrow pool and uh, the results have uh, hurt them over the years. I don't know if this is optimistic or pessimistic. This whole conversation. I have moments of hope and then moments of despair. I'm just, it's a it's a roller coaster. At some moments, I'm like, we're gonna get through it, and the other moments, I'm like, it's done. It's over tomorrow. But it's a, it's a good not to be a little bit. I guess talking about United States history, whenever we're greatly involved, greatly revved up, and we make a major effort to deal with the situation, we are able to do it. World War One, World War Two. The, uh, the terrorist war on terrorism and so on. Uh, the only time we have to, well, I should say, the only time, the main fear is if there's a lack of focused effort to be able to gear up to meet the challenge. That's, I think, the biggest thing we have to worry about. We can put together a strong military force in the next two to three, four years to intimidate China from trying to go to war, I think. I don't know for sure, I think. Uh, and also, if we can deal also with that, what's happening in Latin America. And the border, if we choose to do it, and if we're focused in that direction, if we get lazy and sloppy and out of focus, and if our president is on the take uh, from the Chinese Communist Party, uh, that could be the eternal rot that could uh, cause big, big problems. Yeah, and yeah, I mean that would kind of throw the wrench into all the gears, is if the commander in chief himself is compromised or incompetent or senile. Uh, there's or all of them yeah it's okay that i and i got not pessimistic on us there uh but uh, uh we i think the american people are aroused about the fentanyl crisis and we are getting concerned about the threat from china so hopefully that's going to mean we're going to gear up and meet the and meet the challenge you yeah i mean i think deterrence is the best choice i don't really think there's any other viable option i think you just have to have it such an overwhelmingly large force that just looking at it you're like it's suicide i think that's the only because we can't have total war in 2023 we can't have total war in the age of nuclear weapons you can't have it you have to have mutual assured destruction yes uh no i think and i say this with kind of a hope and a prayer that the leaders on the other side are rational and when they look at the way the cards are stacked up, hopefully against them, they would choose not to use a nuclear weapon in uh, Ukraine, which would it's been communicated that they were to do that, that all of NATO and all of the United States would come into uh, uh, Ukraine and try to kill every possible Russian soldier and also sink every ship on the Black Sea. It'd be a huge uh, retaliation and supported by the nations of the world who would dare to cross that line. Hopefully that works. Of course, you have someone who's dying of cancer. Maybe he's uh, off his nut. Hopefully not. If he is rational on uh, General Xi, I think is uh, cold, calculating, and rational. If he sees that he's going to take a beating or pay a heavy price until Taiwan, hopefully he would not cause uh, a fair war there. But I don't know. Maybe he thinks that he can beat us and they can lose the war. So it's a uh, difficult, uh, perilous times. Uh, I'm uh, optimistic by nature. 
hope it's not naive and optimistic. <laughs> I hope it is going to work out for the means of uh, a peaceful solution. No, I'm with you. Um, that's the critique I often get is that I'm optimistic to a fault, but you kind of have to be because the just rationally, I mean, the very fact that we are still here says that it's worked out thus far. Doesn't mean that there hasn't been hundreds of millions of people killed in genocides over the millennia. Like, obviously it has, but by virtue of the fact that you and I are sitting here talking, mm-hmm. we have gotten through it. And so that you don't even need to be optimistic. It's just, it's, 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 it's manifested. It's, it's provable reality. We're here. Mm-hmm. We're not in a, we're not in, on, uh, on an, uh, irradiated ember. Mm-hmm. Like that, that doesn't, that's not an argument to say, well, you have to be optimistic. You know, that's fact. We are here. Beyond that article, I just wrote American Greatness magazine. I talked about how Eisenhower, uh, was not perfect, but he was able to avoid, technically speaking, not even a single casualty in his eight years. Now he inherited the Korean War, which was the responsibility of the Truman administration, but in his administration, partly responsible for uh, not one single American soldier lost or his life in combat. I think there was some exceptions actually. But anyway, the point is that it's possible doing it just exactly right uh, to strike the right balance and to avoid uh, the right kind of strength and peace through strength and the right kind of balance to uh, prevent war from taking place. But of course, the worst thing you can have is a, a tempting weakness on uh, our part that uh, invites the uh, totalitarian regimes to attack us. So we need to be uh, strong, especially in the Pacific, win in the Ukraine, in my opinion, and have a very strong Navy in the Pacific. And hopefully that would discourage adventurism on the part of uh, the Chinese. I still think we need some some orbital strike weapons, like rods from God, those tungsten poles. That you ever seen that that concept? No, no. Of course, there's a space called, force is a big thing. Now, go ahead. So yeah, it's called a rods from God, and it's a okay. uh, kind of looks like this. It's like a it's like a platform in space, and it holds like ten or twenty uh, telephone pole sized tungsten rods, and you drop them from like two hundred miles up. And they come down with like the force of a nuclear weapon, but you know no radiation, and mm. uh, pretty much impossible to stop, and relatively cheap to manufacture. Got to get them up there. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I th- I think that's a good deterrence, but that also might just escalate because you know how long until they build one and just hover it over New York, and it's like, well, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that maybe that's the flaw in my own monkey brain is to think that we can just build a bigger weapon when all of human history is just one weapon leading to another defense. You know, the, the, the guy that made the Gatling gun thought it would end war. No, it didn't. It just made it so much worse, right? I mean, the right. Ma- Maxim machine gun, like, no, it just, it just jumped up a notch. Yes, uh, it's a, an arms race. Of course, there's the defensive side and the defensive side, the first hyper- Sonic missiles right now we have no answer for. Yeah. Uh, our Patriot uh, missile systems cannot stop them. And, and we're behind in developing. We're just in the early testing stages of hypersonic missiles. So we, we got those stolen march on us in that particular category. Fortunately, the Russians are just a sloppy mess. 
uh, when he comes to actually performing in the field. That's the good news. Uh, and uh, hopefully we get some more good news. Uh, the Chinese have been untested. They've not really been in the war a long time. They did not, oh, perform particularly well in uh, Korea. They were, they were uh, of course, they were not very well supplied. That's a whole other story. But uh, uh, we can we have a strong military, uh, strong Navy. Uh, there's a good chance of deterring the uh, Chinese from uh, further aggression. And that's just what uh, we have to hope for. That's the basic uh, path that they can need to take. I hope it turns out well. Um, but we're coming up on an hour. So I say let's wrap this one up. Mr. Nod, I'd love to have you back on. You're a cool guy. You're a cool guy to chat with. You are a wealth of knowledge. And uh, when's the when's the new book coming out? Yes, it's, uh, I, at one point I was hoping I could have it out late this year. I'm having, by the way, I'm having a lot of fun writing the book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is a good thing. My lady who does my editing, that sort of thing, is very excited about the book. Also, she gave me positive feedback. It's going to be at least late this year. Maybe I can get it out in time for Christmas. If not, it'll be the first part of the following year. And I, I have two books. I have Tiny Blunders, Big Disasters, number two. Okay, and then I also have another book on a different subject, on the hushed-up murders of famous people. They murdered big and got away with it. That's a, a whole different subject, but that's a fun book too. So it's up. And I, I think that one of the reasons that I've been so blessed so far is that it is the books is are fun to write and they're yeah. fun to read and they're they're interesting. Yeah. So it's. No, the the book is a, it's a legitimately good listen on uh, on Audible. I wouldn't say that if I didn't mean it, because um, I can't I can't just recommend books to people because if they f- if people realize I just recommend every book of every guest, well, eventually my recommendation won't mean anything. So like I I do mean it. It's a great book. It's a it's a fun book. It's it it's because the way it's sectioned out, it doesn't really feel like you're reading a book. It's just a bunch of like mini stories, and it's great yeah. and it's all true and it is. It is all kind of mind blowing, like the the weird dark force that seemed to just save Hitler time after time after time. Like, like what is that? Like, what is that? I mean, but yeah, you know, subject real quickly. Yeah, the one that sticks in my mind the most is he came within thirteen and a half minutes of being uh, assassinated way back in nineteen thirty nine, the early early beginning of World War Two. During then would have taken over. Who was kind of in favor of peace? It, it, World War Two might have been avoided. Yeah. Except that he left the, this big meeting at the big beer hall uh, 13 and a half minutes sooner than expected, and the explosion took place and uh, he missed it. So it was anyway, that's a whole great thing. But yes, tinyblundersbigdisasters.com. Tinyblundersbigdisasters.com. We have a great website there, two and a half free chapters. Also, a book trailer there. And we have the portrait gallery that has 27 personalities uh, with a little bit of dirt on each one. <laughs> Not really, but anyway, it's got a fun part of the book there, Balls. Uh, Hell yeah. Well, guys, I would recommend it. It's Again, it's legitimately a good read. Um, it's fun. It's terrifying. And it's a, you can look at it in an optimistic or pessimistic sense. You know, the butterfly flapping and swings could destroy the world or could save the world. And it's, I don't know, there's some peace in that chaos, knowing that it's kind of out of your hands. There is some mm-hmm. peace in that. Um almost strange lovey and how I stopped worrying, right? <laughs> but but then, uh, to be for sounding too religious here, but uh, in Vietnam, I mean, I, I, out there in the infantry, it's the old saying, it's not any uh, uh, atheists and foxholes. And I would just pray and pray and pray 
and the guy guy got us through. Yeah. And uh, all my men came back in one piece, and no one was uh, injured, no one was killed. So uh, maybe some power prayer. Oh, absolutely, oh, absolutely. Yes. No, I, I I pray every day. I think that's also an immense thing. Is you know, if a dark force can protect Hitler, why can't a good force protect protect us? Right. Well, because one yes, implies sorry. the other. Up implies down. Peace implies war. Night implies day. So if you see evil, don't don't despair because that implies good. Right. Depends God on God has blessed us. He's blessed the United States uh, uh, enormously, and uh, maybe. At one point, it looked like 30, 40 years ago that maybe democracy was on the march, the Soviet Union was collapsing, et cetera, et cetera, like that Tiananmen Square, and that maybe the forces of democracy were going to be starting to prevail. It didn't happen. Uh, but uh, maybe the future will, be, uh, future will be bright if we just keep heading in the right direction and uh, ask God's support. I think we will. And uh, on that note, Mr. Knott, let's wrap this one up. Guys, links in the description. Go check them out. Um, look forward to your next book. And, uh, yeah, stay in touch, dude. I'd love to talk with you again. Yes, absolutely. I'd love to very much. Enjoy it very much. Appreciate Thank you, sir. It. Thank you so much. Have a good day. You too. Peace. Thank you so much. Stay safe, everybody. Thanks for watching. Peace.